You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. We're starting a new mini-series this morning looking at the Trinity, uh, how our God is three in one. And I want to ask a question at the beginning of this morning. What do these images that we're going to see in a moment, what do they have in common? Um, next slide. Okay, so we've got here a picture of an egg. We've got a three-leaf clover. We've got uh, H2O in its various forms. And we've also got uh, Nivea three-in-one. That's just uh, for the sake of those joining us online so that you know what's on the screen. These are all illustrations that I have heard used to try and describe what God is like. So I've had someone tell me before, the Trinity is like an egg. Uh, the, the shell, the yolk, and the white are all part of the egg. It's still one thing, but there's three uh, parts to it. I've heard someone say the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, three leaves, one clover. I've heard some say the Trinity is like H2O in its three forms, so ice, steam, and water, but one substance. The greatest I've heard is this, that the Trinity was like three-in-one shampoo, three activities, one substance. Christians, um, many of us here who place our faith in Jesus, we believe that God is one and yet three, but it's a very difficult concept to explain. Maybe you've had someone try and explain the Trinity to you in these ways. Um, I'm here to say this morning that these illustrations fall woefully short of explaining what our God is like. Uh, I remember getting into a very circular discussion with a Muslim on a train once as I was trying to explain uh, God being three in one. Didn't get very far. Um, Let me tell you today, God is beautiful and what makes him beautiful is the fact that he is three in one. We probably all agree as Christians, this is sound theology, okay? We think this is orthodox, we nod our heads, think, yeah, I believe, I believe in that. But whether or not it makes a difference to our lives is another matter. We might think, well, my life would be no different if God was just God. If he was just a single, single person God, nothing would change for me. It's my prayer this morning and over these next couple of weeks that as we gaze upon the wonder of who God is, that we will change. You might be here this morning thinking, I'd really like a practical sermon series, like the one we did in the book of James a few months ago, where we saw how uh, God wants every part of our lives to be changed. You know, this is practical, because as we gaze upon the beauty of God, as we see who he is, we will change. Because this is what we've been saved for. We've been saved to know God, and to know him more and more deeply. And as we know him more and more deeply, this will affect every area of our lives. This is what we have been saved for. Knowing the love of God is the very thing, it's the very thing that makes us loving. So to know God's love as we look at the Trinity will change things for us. It will change our marriages, it will change our family life, it will change our friendships, it will change the way we operate in our workplaces, it will change the way we speak about others, it will change our church life as we press in to know God more. This morning you might be here thinking, I'm really frustrated with particular areas of my life. I keep slipping up in this way. I keep making mistakes in this way. I'm struggling with this attitude or with this uh, thought pattern. Let me tell you that no matter how many strategies you put in place, no matter how many tactics you put in place to try and change, you will not change unless you actually ultimately come to know God more and press into him more. Those things are not bad things, but it's all about getting to know God more and pressing in to know him. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament uh, letters that we can uh, find, he was an expert theologian. He was an expert in God. And yet he said, I've got one goal, and it's to know Christ. You think this, this guy might have known Christ already, that he might have known all there is to know. 
He knew a lot, and yet his goal was to know Christ. This is what he made his life's goal. So, we try and get our head around him. How can he be one and yet three? The problem with these illustrations that we've looked at is that they are essentially advocating modalism. Okay, there's a theological word for you. That God might have three different modes. Or, if, you, if you'd like, moodalism, that he has three different moods. That he used to feel fatherly. Um, in the Old Testament, that's kind of the mood he, he felt. Oh, I feel kind of fatherly at the moment. Uh, and now, uh, maybe, maybe when Jesus came, that he felt like a son for 30 years. And now he's feeling quite spiritual. And that's kind of, uh, that's, that's kind of what this is advocating. Because um, if you think about the illustration of the uh, H2O, uh, water, steam, and ice, they can't coexist at the same time. They're either one or the other. And so these illustrations, they fall short down the road. These illustrations will often make God seem some sort of divine club. He's some pantheon of divine people who uh, can just apply to join. These are, uh, this is, these are not helpful illustrations in that regard. The father and the son didn't bump into each other millions of years ago and realize how well they get on with each other and just thought, oh, let's form the club, let's form the trinity. That's not uh, how it worked. There's only one true God. This is what we believe as Christians. There's one true God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This illustration may help us a little. It's going to come up on the screen. The Father is not the Son who is not the Spirit, but each are God. So it's as we gaze upon God in these weeks, as we gaze upon this God who's three in one, that we will be changed as we see afresh who he is. We'll see that the Trinity is not some unessential add-on to God. It's not kind of some software that we can sort of plug in to God and install. The Trinity is essential. It's essential that we believe this, and it's essential that we enjoy this. It's not a problem. Actually, the Trinity is something we can delight in. In pressing into the Trinity, we're doing what David said in Psalm 27, where he says, I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. This is what we're doing in this series, particularly focusing on the Father today, but in the weeks to come on the Son and the Holy Spirit, that God is in himself love. We're going to dwell upon that this morning. Before all things could never be anything but love. Having such a God, this will change everything. This isn't some kind of theology that's uh, optional if we kind of get clever and we want to investigate a bit about God. This is essential, and this will change everything. Michael Reeves has written a great book called The Good God. I would heartily recommend this to you. Uh, It's a short book, which, as you know here, I love short books. Uh, It makes me have a sense of achievement when I finished it, and um, short chapters. And it's all about the Trinity. It's all about who God is, what he's like. And he writes this. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking, the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. And the first truth this morning that we are going to get our heads around is this, that God is love. And one of Jesus' disciples, John, writes a letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says this, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's precisely because God is one, but eternally existing in three persons, that we can know that he is ultimately love. If he was solitary for eternity then at some point he would have had nobody and nothing to love. Just think about that for a moment. There would have been a time when he could not have been loved in and of himself if he was on his own. Love for others would not be his heartbeat. By his very nature, he would be inward-looking and not outwardly loving. 
This is the tension we find in other religions that deny the Trinity. So in Islam, for example, Allah, he is called the loving. He has 99 names. Uh, One of them is the loving. But how could he be loving in eternity if at some point he had no one to love? Before he created, there could be nothing in existence that he could love. That suggests that Allah needs his creation to be who he is in himself. He'd be dependent upon his creation. How could a solitary God be eternally and essentially, so in their essence, loving, when love involves loving someone else? Love involves another. The Christian God is a God of love. Love is at the heart of who he is. This will change everything when we grasp this. This will change everything when we realize that at the heart of who God is, he is love. It's when we know God as a God of love that we will be inclined to run to him. Because if we think he's kind of some dictator in the sky who is not in his essence love, then we're going to run from him, right? And maybe that's actually at the bottom of often our running from God, is that we don't remind ourselves that he is ultimately in his essence a God of love. And my prayer is that over these weeks to come, and even this morning as well, that maybe those of us who are cold spiritually, who've maybe been running from God, and maybe we've been feeling like God is not near, that we will see that he's love and we will run to him. God has always been love because he's always had someone to love. The Father has always loved the Son and has always loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always loved the Father and has always loved the Son, and so on and so on. This puts the commands of Jesus into their true light, doesn't it? So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this isn't some kind of heavy commandment he's making here. He's inviting us into a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is in and of himself love. So this is a good thing we're being invited into. When God says, be holy like I am holy, he's inviting us into something delightful, not something dull, not something boring. Becoming more godly is not about becoming mean and dull. God is far from mean and dull. God is love in his essence, in his nature, because he is three in one. You see how important this is? He is three in one, and his love is his essence. Secondly, God is a father before all else. If we start with a view as God primarily as creator, then we can conclude, as I've said already, that he needs us to be who he is. If he's primarily a creator, then he needs a creation in order to have an identity, in order to be who he is. He would need us. With single-person gods, having spent eternally, eternity alone, it's hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist at all. Think about that for a moment. Creation would be a deeply unnatural thing for a single-person god to do, unless, of course, they wish to use the creation for their own gratification. The truth is that God's primary identity is not as a creator because there was a time when he had nothing to call his creation. His primary identity is not as a ruler because there was a time when he had nothing to rule. Yes, he is a creator and yes, he is a ruler. But his primary identity is as a father. He's first and foremost revealed himself to be a loving father. That's what he was doing before the creation of the world. Jesus says in John chapter 17, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he's a father. If you take nothing else home today and just that one thing, 
I'd be happy. That the most foundational thing about God is not some abstract quality, but that he is a father. This is abundantly clear in the Bible. Again and again in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as a father. He uh, uses illustrations to describe himself as a father. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he's talking to his father. And he's teaching his disciples to pray to their father in heaven. And we see that then they obey that. We read the epistles. These are the letters that the early church leaders would write. They would write things like this. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how they prayed. Before all things, God is a father and all of his ways are beautifully fatherly. They're beautifully fatherly. If God were primarily a ruler, then salvation for us would look like him simply treating us as if we had kept the rules. That would, that's what salvation would look like. And yes, we know that when we're justified, having placed our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us through his life and death and resurrection, yes, we are treated as if we'd kept the rules when we know we haven't. But praise God, salvation is even more than that because he's a father. He's adopted us into his family. So salvation is far more than just being treated as if we've kept the rules. It's far more than just being treated as if you know, we're going to get away with it. Salvation is about us being adopted into the family of God because he's first and foremost a father. Do you know that? Do you know that you're as loved as Jesus is loved? The father has always loved his son. He's cherished his son for all eternity. Do you know that you are cherished by God the Father in the same way that he cherishes Jesus? That's the truth this morning that I would love just to hammer home to us this morning. We need God's help in that. Has this truth changed you? Do you know that you're in his family? Do you know that is what salvation is? It's not just being let off the hook. It's being invited in to the family of God. So when we consider that God is before all things a father, it's only this God who really makes sense of the world as we see it. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were happy in themselves before creation. They didn't, they didn't think, you know what, we're pretty bored here. Let's create something and have some fun. That's not how it worked. They were perfectly happy in and of themselves. The creation was a free choice born out of nothing but love. That God wanted his love for his son to overflow to others. He wanted to communicate and spread his love. And that is why we exist. That is why everything you see exists, because God wants to communicate his love to others. It wasn't that anything was needed for them. They weren't needy. So in the coming weeks, we're going to look, as I say, at the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the Son. But today, we're going to focus in on the Father And J.I. Packer wrote a great book called Knowing God a few years ago now. And he wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Let me ask you, is this thought of God as your father, is it controlling and prompting your prayer life? Is it having an effect on your whole outlook on life? Is it having an effect on your life? Because if it's not, you need to be reminded this morning of this truth. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I just want to ask for anyone here 
who is spiritually feeling pretty cold, who's maybe on the run, as it were, who's maybe turned their back on you, who's maybe felt disappointed or let down by you. I want to pray, Father, right now that your spirit would come and testify to their spirit that they are children of God. I pray, Father God, that right now you would just uh, melt hearts that are stony, where people just don't know how much you love them and how much you've done for them to adopt them in your family. Would you come now? We want the love of God to change our whole lives. Amen. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus to be your saviour, if you've seen that you cannot save yourself, and if you said, Jesus, only you can save me, only you can take away this sin that separates me from God, then you have not only been forgiven, not only have you been justified, but you've been adopted. You've been adopted. And this is the crucial uh, thing that we need to grasp hold of this morning. Maybe um, this doesn't kind of... uh, seem like good news to you because as we've said before here, we all have imperfect uh, pictures of our earthly father. In our earthly father, I should say. We have an imperfect picture of God. So God has to use uh, imagery that we will understand in order to to tell us what he's like. And so he's chosen to use this imagery of a father, but because each one of us have dads on this earth who are imperfect, some of us have had good dads, some of us have had awful dads, um, he we don't always get this properly because we've got an imperfect image of a father in our lives. But the deal is this. God is not called your father because he's some pumped up version of your dad. God is the, the ultimate father and every other father derives his name from God. God is the ultimate example of what a father should be. And uh, he's used other things to explain what it's like when he says that he's the Lord. It means master. And uh, none of us have perfect earthly masters, do we? None of us have perfect bosses. Many of us have have imperfect bosses. And yet God has to use illustrations that we will understand in order to just try and communicate what he's like. All human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Dads here, I hope that you're taking your cue from the ultimate father. I hope you're taking your cue from him. Do you know that it's your responsibility to provide spiritually for your family? Whether your children have flown the nest or whether they're still at home or maybe you're a spiritual parent yourself, your responsibility is to provide spiritually for your family. So often we understand, don't we, rightly, that we're to provide financially, we're to provide materially for our families, but ultimately that what our families need most is that we would provide for them spiritually, that we would be going hard after God and causing our families to come with us. The very best thing for your children, if you're a dad here, is not some, getting some extra shifts. It's not kind of good holidays. The very best thing is that you can be in the word of God, taking your cue from the ultimate father, that you would actually see what he's like and copy his ways. That's the, that's what we need, men, is to be providing for our, our families spiritually before anything else, is to be providing for our families spiritually. So what's God like as a father? Let's look at some of his attributes. Ultimately, as I've said, he's adopted us. He's loved us despite our sin. 
in our sin. He saw us. He had compassion on us. He sent his son. And we're going to dwell on that a little later on. His disposition towards us is one of love. And in his love, God is so consistent with us. He's so consistent. It says in James chapter 1 that there's no shadow of change in God. He's the father of lights in whom there is no shadow due to change. He doesn't change. He's the same. He was the same 10 years ago when he took you through whatever it was that you went through 10 years ago as he is today. He doesn't change. Even though our circumstances change, even though our affection for him changes, he never changes. I am, as a dad, inconsistent. On one day, I could be, uh, I could be happy and uh, interested in what my kids are doing and have tons of patience. And the next day, I might be really tired and I just want them to watch something on CBB so I can get on with what I want to get on with. I can be inconsistent in that regard. We, as parents here, we can be inconsistent with our children, but God is utterly consistent. He never changes. He's always full of grace and mercy. He's always slow to anger. He's always steadfast in his love for us. He's abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't change. And that's so important we grasp that. We come to a constant, we come to a consistent God. Secondly, he disciplines us. This might surprise you that I've included this in here. We love, don't we, to sing the song, Good, Good Father. And it's a good song. It's a good, good song. But what we don't often realize is that in his love, God will discipline us. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. He disciplines us. Sometimes he allows us to go through painful things in order to discipline us. Sometimes he would withdraw some things from us in order to discipline us because he has a vision for us. His discipline flows from him having love for us and a vision for us, a vision of what we can be. He wants us to become more like Jesus. That's his desire for us. That's his ultimate desire for us. Not that we would have everything materially that might make us uh, happy, in inverted commas, but actually that we would become more like Jesus. That's his desire for us. And so in his love, he will discipline us because he has a vision for us and that's the heart of discipline in our own families if we have to discipline our children in whatever way we choose to do it's not out of anger but it's out of our heart for them it's out of our vision for them it's out of a sense of I want to see this child grow in maturity I've I've got a good heart and a good vision for them and therefore I bring discipline and not because it's not loving because it's actually very loving to bring discipline but because I've got a vision for them. I want to see them mature. I don't want to see them stay the same. Do you understand why it's good news that God is, a tr- is Trinity, that he's three in one, that he's a triune God? Because if he wasn't, if he wasn't essentially love, then his anger at our sin would be like a temper tantrum. But actually, because God is essentially love, his anger towards sin actually rises out of love. So when he sees us messing around with things that are bad for us, his anger, his anger is, is real, but it's born out of love. He wants to, to see his children freed from what is oppressing us, freed from what is making a mess of our lives. His anger is, is good because it comes out of his love, because he's essentially a God of love, and he's essentially a father. Thirdly, he's in charge. He works things out for us as a sovereign father. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit, then he is eminently rejectable. He's without love. He's without beauty, without radiance. 
I wouldn't want to have a God like that in power, would you? I wouldn't want to have a God like that in control. I wouldn't want to have a God like that in charge in any way. But actually here, as we see that God is a loving community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is a God that we want to have in control. This is a God that we want to have in charge. This is a God whose sovereignty we can rejoice in, whose sovereignty we can celebrate and say, yes, you're in charge, because ultimately he's a God of love. That he's doing things even when we don't know it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is one of the key verses to understanding the fatherhood of God. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. He is working things together even when we don't know it. Behind the scenes, in the things that are good and things that are bad, in the things that are boring, in the things that are exciting, in the things that are downright perplexing and we think, God, why are you allowing this to happen? He is working things out because he's in charge. He's doing things behind the scenes that we may not know about. God is doing thousands of things in our lives and we might know about two of them. He is a God who's in charge. So we know we have a sovereign father. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, when you pray, start like this. Heavenly father, our father who is in heaven. Because he wanted them to grasp that they weren't praying to some impotent God who couldn't do anything. Yeah, he's loving, but he doesn't have any resources, so he can't really do anything about it. No, he wanted them to see they're praying to a God who has all the resources in heaven and on earth. That he's able to do things. He's able to respond to our prayers. And he's our father. So he's in charge. And fourthly, he's generous. He's a giver. The most generous man in the world is Bill Gates. This man is worth 67 billion pounds. 67 billion pounds. Let's have a look at what he could do with this money. He could give a tenner to every person in the world and still be left with billions of pounds. If he dropped a thousand pounds on the floor, it wouldn't be worth his while picking it up because in the four seconds that he would have done, it would have taken to pick it up, he would have earned another £1,000. He earns £3 billion in interest each year. If he was a country, and he probably has enough money to make himself a legal country, he would be the 37th richest country in the world. If he lived for another 30 years, he would need to spend £5 million a day just to exhaust his wealth. What would you do with five million pounds a day? How would you spend it? And yet, he's a very, very generous man. Depending on how you measure it, he's probably the most generous man in the world because he's given over the last few years tens of billions of pounds to charity, to third world situations, to eradicating disease. In some, in some measures, depending on how you measure it, he's the, he's the most generous man in the world. And yet, compared to God the Father, he's a pauper. Compared to the generosity of God, he's generous... His generosity looks mean because God is infinitely wealthy and in his common grace to us, he's given us things out of his generosity. He's given us the things that we enjoy in life. He didn't have to make food flavorsome. He didn't have to think, you know, those cows, they're going to make pretty good steaks for those humans. He didn't have to put color in the world. He didn't have to make beautiful things. He didn't have to make beautiful mountains or beautiful sea uh, seaside resorts. He didn't have to do any of that. Out of his generosity to us, he has done things which were not necessary. Music, sights, colors, friendship, romance. He didn't have to make any of this. In his generosity, he's given it to us. But ultimately, he has shown his generosity not in material things that we can see or touch, but 
in giving his son. In giving his son. That is how he has demonstrated his generosity to us. There's only one person I bet that Bill Gates will never give money to, and that's Apple. He will never give money to Apple. Why? Because they're the enemy. They're the rivals. They're the ones that he doesn't want to see succeed. Well, God, in his love for us, when we were still enemies, when we were still far from him, he sent Jesus to die in our place. That's how generous our God is, that he gave of himself. Doesn't that make the, the, the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, doesn't that make it even more incredible? When we realize this is a triune God we're talking about here. We're talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been together for all eternity and he sent his son. And knowing what would happen to his son, he sent his son. Knowing that his son would be nailed to a cross made out of wood that they had created together. They'd made these trees together. And these people would take this wood and make it into a cross. And these hands, these beautiful hands they'd crafted of these human beings would be used to nail in nails into the hands and feet of the Son. Knowing that this would happen, Jesus came. He willingly obeyed his Father to come to this earth. And on this earth, he showed such generosity. Everywhere he went, he was generous in the way that he healed people, in the way that he included those who were outcast, in the way that he uh, produced wine at the wedding when they'd run out. He showed the Father's generous ways. Everywhere he went, he wanted to show the generosity of God. And then ultimately, he gave himself. He didn't give something that was beyond him. He didn't give millions of pounds. He gave his own self. He gave his body up on the cross to be smashed to pieces for you and I. This is our God. This is a God that we can trust. This is a God that we can never doubt that he loves us. Even when we're going through things that we think, what is going on here, God? Even when we're experiencing difficulty and maybe discipline. Not all difficulty is discipline by any means. But maybe we're experiencing these things and we think, God, what is going on? When we look to the cross, we can't doubt his love. When we can't, we can't doubt his generosity. We can't doubt his care for us because he has dealt with our greatest need and that is our need to be forgiven. He's dealt with it. He's made a way for us to be forgiven. He's made a way for us to be cleansed. He's made a way for us to be adopted into his family. So this morning, we're going to respond to this by just, in a moment, I'm going to pray. And we're just going to just say to God, I trust you. You're my father. I might have, rub- I might have had a rubbish example of an earthly dad. Or we might not have. But I'm going to trust you as my father. Because you have shown me such generosity in sending your son. You've shown me your care for me in sending your best. And we're just going to say to God, I trust him. And there'll be an opportunity after the meeting this morning to get prayer in our prayer area here. Maybe you're here and you've, got a, you've had a terrible example of an earthly dad. And it's really affected your viewpoint of God as your father. We want to pr- stand with you and pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're wanting to give your life to God for the first time. Say, God, I want to know this forgiveness. I want to know you as my father. I want to give myself to you. I want to say sorry for what I've done wrong. I want to turn away from it. It's an opportunity for you to do that this morning. You can do that even as we sing in a moment. Tell someone if you've done it. Tell someone. Get someone to pray with you later. We'd love to do that. So we're going to have prayer for a number of different things going on after we've sung and after we've given into this offering. We can trust God this morning. We can trust our father. Sarah and I gave in the first service, gave sacrificially. 
and we can say to God, God, I trust that you will provide for us. You will come through for us. Because we can look at the cross here and we can say, God, if you didn't spare your only son, then how are you going to hold back on anything else that we need? So should we stand together? I want to pray for each one of us. The band are going to get, come and get ready to play. And we are going to rejoice this morning. We're going to rejoice in our good father. We're going to rejoice in his plans for us as a church. We're going to rejoice in the fact that he has got good things for us in the years to come. And we're going to give. And if you, as I've said already, if you've not bought money with you this morning, don't panic. You can give in the week. Do get in touch with us and let us know. Get on our giving page on our website and we can receive your gift online or in other means. But let's pray together, shall we? And then we're going to celebrate and give. Thank you, Father, that we right now are standing in the presence of one who is ultimately love, one who is at his very core love. Thank you, Father, that that encourages us to run to you. Lord, it encourages us to uh, trust you. It encourages us to give ourselves wholly to you with our lives and, and with our money, Lord. And we just say now as we give, we are giving not just our money, but we're giving ourselves afresh to you, saying, God, we're all yours. We're all in on this. Lord, all, all that we have is yours, every ounce of energy, every talent that you've given us, every possession. This is ultimately yours. We want to use it for your glory. Lord, we're trusting that you have got many people in this town. We're trusting that many will come to know you. And uh, Father God, we, we thank you right now that uh, you have adopted us into your family. Thank you, Lord. I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you. I pray that right now as we sing, that something will, will uh, hit home, that something will um, touch hearts right now, that people will uh, be affected by your love right across this room. Lord God, would you come, be glorified amongst us, we pray. Lord, we give gladly now out of response to your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.